All right. So we were talking about obfuscation and this came up when we were talking about why well, sent you a link to a social philosopher named Daniel Schmachtenberger and was was the language that he was using in that video what prompted this thought for you or what what was the thinking around obfuscation and language and uh i don't know take it from there <laughs> um if i'm remembering correctly like when i was listening to schmachtenberger um i was really impressed by his like pan subject uh fluency Mm -hmm. um and was able to distill that down into like in uh, he demystified the the language of multiple disciplines and brought them into a cohesive conversational like right, okay, right, 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 right? Right. and i think that's like a really unique skill because so much of i think what we deal with in like the softer sciences of the world is an exercise in knitting together that kind of cohesive vocabulary from all these disparate disciplines so like when i think of myself um like i formally studied like economics rhetoric um and essentially sociology um and like as i branched out into some like you know neighboring disciplines i was able to like you know work my way through those texts but the more i read and the deeper i got through these kind of similar but different dis, uh, disciplines, you started to, or at least I start to find that everyone's talking about the same thing, but in different ways. Right. Like each discipline has invented its own vocabulary, right? Right. Um, and I like speculatively, I'm almost wondering if each discipline as like an emergent species of, uh, of academic inquiry um, was kind of like an innovation, right? And to validate or the innovation they needed to create like a mystery around it um some sort of impenetrability that made it an expert subject as opposed to like a lay subject right right that becomes apparent in the vocabulary that each discipline uses and so in some ways just to survive as like an independent discipline obfuscation might just be a survival instinct for um experts yes interesting I mean, this is like <clears throat> uh, Bucky Fuller. Um, you're making me think of. Um, he talks about in his book, Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth, and I just ran and grabbed it off my shelf. Um, and think I have this part underlined. Uh, <laughs> he says that. Our failures are a consequence of many factors, but possibly one of the most important is the fact that society operates on the theory that specialization is the key to success, not realizing that special specialization precludes comprehensive thinking. Uh, and then he goes on, and it's kind of getting to your point, like, all universities have been progressively organized for ever finer specialization. Society assumes that specialization is natural, inevitable, and desirable. Yet in observing the little child, we find it is interested in everything and spontaneously apprehends, comprehends, and coordinates an ever-expanding inventory of experiences. Children are enthusiastic planetarium audiences. Nothing seems to be more prominent about human life than, in, than it's wanting to understand all and put everything together. Man seems unique as the comprehensive comprehender and coordinator of local universe affairs. 
If the total scheme of nature required man to be a specialist, she would have made him so by having him born with one eye and a microscope attached to it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bucky Fuller, man. Um, Yeah, super interesting. So that narrow specialization is a way of insulating understanding which is conducive to the aggregation of power in a particular domain yeah that's a, that's the thing yeah. yeah interesting and and then we wield this power in different ways in the market right so there's like a there's a if you can operationalize a particular specialty through invented language that that ob, obfuscates mm-hmm. saying that right obfuscates that in turn is playing on supply demand dynamics uh in which um supply is under well supply is the insight and demand is understanding and yeah, I mean, just look at uh, like the the software engineering community, right? Like right. the the code that they write is essentially a specialized language that they invented. That you know, for for obvious reasons, I'm not saying they could have just written prose back in the day and like shoved right. it into a computer. Um, and it's obviously evolved from like the bits and bytes and all that. But it's essentially just it's a translation skill, right? Translating from what you want to have happen into this code so that it does happen. Right. And when there was an extreme shortage of those people, their market value was insanely high. I mean, still some, to some degree, their market value is insanely high, but I don't think that's because there's an undersupply anymore. I think that's because they've become enmeshed in like this status quo power vacuum that software engineers are worth a quarter million dollars a year or more. Right. Um, all through the obfuscation of what they're actually doing, which is basic translation work. Um from executables through code to outcome. Yeah. So. <clears throat> and now we're in the process of demystifying or de-obfuscating with all the low code, no code platforms, or I mean, maybe even the better example is the text to image AI. Right. For the text to video AI. That's completely eliminating the like occult uh, knowledge that software engineering is harvested and returning that to the people. So you're starting to see big questions about what their value might be or like, how do they re-entrench? Right. And that I think is going to be probably the interesting bit because this like mystification, demystification things tends to go in waves. And so as like the initial specialization, which might not have been like super hard to get into becomes very publicly accessible the re-entrenchment requires like a second layer of mystification underneath it until the public catches up. And then you see that cycle repeat itself over and over again within that domain. of Interesting. I love the idea of that, like the sine wave of mystification, demystification. Um, And hmm. It, do you do you feel like mystification is the is like civilization's inhale 
and demystification of civilizations exhale and that there's a there's an expansiveness that comes with the exhale which then requires a new inhale in a emergent fractal way um i mean in terms of like the metaphor of breath yeah i think that makes sense i don't know if it makes if it makes sense or matters which is the inhale versus the exhale mm -hmm. uh, because my instinct is like uh, yeah i guess the the inhale could be the mystification it's like breathing in new life until like an unexposed area mm. or like filling it up and then letting it out. Yeah, sure. Let's roll with it. Yeah. I mean, what do you, what do you think though about like, so there is something to be, I don't know. So I, I, I think this is very interesting. Like what if, if we take this in a, in a non-dualistic way and say that, that, uh, non-intentional obfuscation through the creation of language that is unique to a particular phenomenon within a domain of understanding is neither good nor bad but rather how it's wielded and in some cases it can be good in some cases it can be bad so for example um we all have a basic understanding of certain certain words very normal common words right and that shared understanding is essentially what allows us as a community of people to share meaning right um and to connect to others um where in other cases uh for so okay so for for example I can go to a um, certain environments and use words like the chaosmos or theopoetics or uh, the Hollandistic nature of the universe. I can use phrases like that. And people know exactly what I'm talking about. And because they know exactly what I'm talking about, there's a sense of camaraderie and connection and resonance. And there's a like reverberance, right? Are, uh, you, are you living in like an artist hovel in Prague in 1922? <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Uh, that's my dream. How did you know, Josh? Um, dream. Yeah, I mean, these are words that have been used for, to your point, like, this, these aren't new ideas or words, right? I mean, Ken Wilber, I think, made the word Holon uh, particularly popular in social philosophy in the second half of the 20th century. But uh, Holon, a Holon being something that is both a part and a whole simultaneously. Um Another example, I was just in a meeting yesterday. No, let me back up. Two weeks ago, I had to write a bio for a, uh, a conference that I'm going to be speaking at in next summer. And in the bio, I used the word inchoate in reference to futures and uh, as an interest, right? So I'm, I'm interested in inchoate futures. 
And I ran it by a colleague of mine. I'm like, hey, does this make sense? And he, and he goes, I have no idea what that word means. And I've never heard it before. I'm like, oh, okay, so I'll take it out. That's probably, I probably shouldn't get too wordy, right? In a, in a bio, you want it to be simple and accessible. But yesterday I'm in a meeting with a client and this client, she says, yeah, it's inchoate. And then she went on to like other things. And like, I was like, what? <laughs> and I literally in the chat, I said, you know, 10,000 points to, I won't say her name, but you know, 10,000 points to, to blank for, for using the word inchoate. <laughs> and her, her colleague, one of my other clients, was like responded and was like don't get her started you know and so for me that was like a i have a, a sense of uh there's an affinity now that i have for this person because they use that word right mm -hmm. and that word is not a con it's not in our common parlance it's not like an everyday word and i i love words and i collect words uh and i think that i love dense words words that hold a ton of meaning right um, for example, uh, the word brontide means a distant rumbling and thundering often from the source of seismic activity. Right. And I, I love that word. Like, it's amazing. Like, oh, the brontide, you know, like there's this, like, there's a whole story behind it. Right. So is it, is it, is it an issue of language or is it an issue of how language is used? and how it's wielded as a market force uh, to exclude uh, and to exploit. Well, I mean, I think the obvious place to like look is law probably, um, which is essentially an entire discipline built around the obfuscation of common sense through like complex <laughs> legal doctrine. And it, in its, complexity of language it excludes the participation of many people and in and in that like exclusion empowers people with this with this you know secret knowledge to exercise their power over others through the mechanism of law right yes and so you could argue in terms like if you're arguing morally it could be used for good or it could be used for bad right like if you have an innate understanding of U.S. labor law as a CEO of a big giant package delivery company, you might have employees dying in warehouses without any ramifications. Um, whereas if you're working for Greenpeace and you have like you know, international environmental law, you can exercise the courts, the international courts in different ways to fight against whaling. Mm. But either way, the average person cannot take up that cause without learning the secret language or deploy right. resources to access like someone who can and right. thus like creates another power dynamic where capital still needs to flow into this system for that power to be exercised and the most and the people most oppressed by the language of the law um don't have access typically to those capital reserves so right. I, I think it's all kind of intermingled which makes sense for our kind of conversation around obfuscation because in a lot of ways like language then becomes an economic um like uh yep an economic paradigm i guess yep totally 100 percent. and not only an economic paradigm but an uh an oppressive system yeah 
perpetuating. I mean, yeah. Think go back to the there's a reason that uh literacy tests were used in voting. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Interesting. That's a great point. Interesting. Huh. Um and so today, I mean, we started talking about Schmachtenberger and his ability to demystify de obfuscate that's such a weird word in and of itself it's so funny the word itself is so <laughs> uh clunky um yeah, it, does, it does not seem like it was invented by english speakers obfuscate yeah uh or obfuscate i don't know i don't know if it's few or fuh but um there's a clarity and in the clarity not only the clarity with the ability to connect multiple domains that have historically been uh, insulated from non-experts through language, right? Um, and to connect those things was really powerful. I find the same. That's why I love I love listening to Schmachtenberger's work uh, and the, the stuff that he's doing. Same with people like, you know, I think Charles Eisenstein is another person who, who's really good at, at bringing together multiple domains of 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 practice and knowledge and con making connections in a very clear and simple way. Um, I mean, you could even say that some of the most popular, you know, the Malcolm Gladwells of the world, you know, whether you like him or not uh, and appreciate his work, he, his popularity is probably built to some degree on his ability to just make things simple. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, there are also the other end of the spectrum. There are people whose work is, you know, infinitely debated because people are seeking to understand to some degree what 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 they are trying to say exactly. Um, I'm thinking about, uh, what's her name? An artist, the turn of the 1920s, you know, early 1900s. Uh, she was a, I believe she was a Dutch artist. I'm totally blanking on her name right now. She's only become popular in the last couple of decades. Um, but she was so ahead of her time. Like people just didn't get it for so long. That's why it took almost a hundred years for her work to really be recognized mm -hmm. for the brilliance that it is. And, and I'll, I'll have to, I'll go back and find her name, but um, So do we need more simplification though right now? Do we need, it's, I mean, I, I feel like we, we probably socially need, need some demystification uh, because truth is such a debated concept. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna be, I'll just be a show for like a liberal arts education because I think that's what it really does. Like, I mean, we the, the ongoing jokes in corporate America about the uselessness of, of a degree that's not like STEM based or dedicated right. to this profession. Um, but a surprising number of like C-suite executives have liberal arts backgrounds of one degree or another, and it, it enables them to kind of think cohesively across those different domains and manage the complexity of different languages coming at you that are required for significant decisions to be made. Now, if you had lived like inside a very professionalized domain your entire life. Like, let's say you've been a doctor, you're straight up doctor your entire life. And that's the language you understand. And you get dropped into a C-suite environment. You're not going to have the 
language skills to be able to make those decisions because nothing will make sense to you. Mm. Like all the, the all the languages that will be coming at you from you know financial forecasts to um, global de-risking strategies to you know customer demand, like none of those voca- none of those are part of your vocabulary. Right. So how are you going to make that decision? So in a lot of ways, I think there is kind of this, there should be this push for broad-based liberal arts education for people that want to be in places where complex decisions need to be made. I mean, I think you can say the same for politics. It's a place where too many people have very like narrow domain expertise and can't synthesize outside of that to have a real conversation about results. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, perhaps if more people came to politics from different disciplines, um, you'd, you'd see that political language evolve and be able to capture the complexity of the topics that we're debating. Yeah. 100%. But on the other hand, I mean, I think there's a clear um, human appetite for simple, concise, basic communication. I mean, look at what our phones have devolved into is right. pictograms and uh, yeah. acronyms. Right. Um. Although I would argue that and I think anybody that's had like a late night text go awry, pictograms can still obfuscate their meaning as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's a there's a, it's a the, the paradox is that it's both. We need we almost need l- literacy has become less about your vocabulary and more about your ability to acquire or grow your vocabulary and synthesize it. Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, professionals or academics, like the end state is to think in the hyper complex and tw- and tweet about it, right? Like if you, can, yeah. if you can manage those two functions simultaneously, you're able, you would have immense power in, in the marketplace of ideas. Right, um, right, 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 right. But since the people that think complexly tend to struggle to communicate in emojis, the, that bridge is rarely made. And hence yeah. how my, Malcolm Gladwell has a career right in the middle. Right, right, right. Yeah, interesting. Um, hmm. So, executives, corporate executives, uh, sophisticated politicians, need to read more poetry they need to transcend their particular domain of knowledge whether it's law policy finance you know whatever business vertical uh, praxis you have acquired you know marketing etc uh i mean it comes down to the diverse consumption and metabolization of knowledge from diverse domains of exploration and discovery. Uh, is that it? Like what, how would you, <laughs> is it diversity? Is it depth? Is it? Um, or is it categories like human, you know, the humanities, like what you, you were saying, social, social sciences. I, it's probably diversity more than it is depth, mm-hmm. um, it, but that probably depends on the discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, 
for instance, like history, like in and of itself doesn't have a lot of complex languages. Um, and you're able to, at least in my experience, understand like the contours of history and the flows and the movements and stuff without specialized language. You can kind of just be led through that journey. Whereas something like, um, you know, systems thinking might require a bit more depth because the language is specialized. So you might have to go beyond kind of that first book. But then I, I do think as you start to develop this kind of patchwork woven schema, the depth required decreases over time. Mm. And, I, and I think, you know, people that read a lot of nonfiction works find themselves as they read more and more, maybe not finishing the book off um, after reading kind of the first half before getting into more of like the evidence and case studies, because you you start to be able to predict the second half of the book. Yep. And you're kind of like, well, I got I got it now. It fits in like this, like put it on the shelf next to these books because yep. that's how it all bridges together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's a, um, I mean, this is what we're getting at, you know, in one way or another is, is learning. Um, is learning, you know, our education system has been oriented just like, you know, Bucky was talking about our collegiate environments are designed to, you know, are organized around specialization. Um, so in my mind, there's, you know, there's a, a pedagogical implication here, right? The way that we design learning, how learning happens, where and how it's facilitated, and what it is specifically that we learn. Um, that kind of trans or post-disciplinary approach to learning seems really critical for an individual's ability or even an organization's ability to make sense of complexity in dynamic times. I mean, I think we have to be able to connect across domains in, in vocabularies. But we also have to account for uh, neurodiversity in the learning environment and, mm -hmm. you know, and and also in the practical sense of the the world moving forward, like we still will need brain surgeons, and like becoming sure. a brain surgeon takes a lot of time. Or yeah, we still will need people that invent like the next transistor, and that yeah. person is going to be hyper specialized. Like I don't yeah. know if I think we've moved beyond like the level of complexity that like Da Vinci lived in, where he could invent flying machines, refrigerators, and yeah. be a surgeon. Um. So we we as a society will continue to need like highly technical, highly specialized people to continue to, to you know, at least if we want to continue on the technological path of progressing down. Yep. Um, but we also will need. Uh, synthesizers, yeah, synthesizers, translators, um, interlopers, people that can navigate the complexity at across these domains at higher levels of um understanding than we currently have yeah i mean that's right too often we have people 
having an argument in different languages, not realizing that it could actually be arguing for the same thing if they could right. just understand that their words were different. Right, right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. So again, it's not a it's not a dualistic kind of mutually exclusive thing. It's it's actually both. Like we need we need specialization and deep understanding of particular domains of knowledge, like neuroscience and brain surgery. And we need horizontal synthesis and connection across domains and the ability and the 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 uh, a particular level of literacy across domains so that we can make sense of complex issues and complex ideas that are you know and the understanding of those complex ideas is critical to an emergent future for human civilization and I think like the human civilization part is important too, because like we've mostly talked about like desktop brain building. Right. Um, and I think per perhaps an even bigger component of being able to kind of traverse complex transdisciplinarity might be um, exposure to the varieties of lives that are out there in the world and understanding how like these different civilizations and cultures co-evolved like in our like matrix with each other um and that even though they don't speak different languages and i know it's cheesy to say like humans are humans everywhere and it's somewhat true but um being able to like just navigate the ambiguity of no language i think helps you understand language better um because you start to incorporate more clues from outside of the ex explicit communication Right. And so I think that that like constant like like call it clue radar. I don't know. Um, in the brain building part helps to make those connections and form that larger tapestry of of your own knowledge. Right. Yeah, that cludar is hard for me. I mean, you mentioned uh, the neurodiversity issue before um, in learning. I mean, I think. I have a very hard time reading body language. Like I can't, it's very hard for me to read a room. And so I often, you know, I come out of meetings and I'll have to go to, you know, trusted colleagues and friends and say, you know, how did you read that? Like, what did you, how do you think it went? Um, and so I think for me, language and words and collecting words and being a good communicator it began very young for me because I had a very hard time navigating the world otherwise because the mm -hmm. other types of nonverbal communication were hard. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it's like if you're deaf, you get better at hearing, right. That sense becomes uh, more sensitive. Um, I mean, if you're blind, you become, sorry, better. sorry. Yeah, yeah. If you're <laughs> blind, you better hear, <laughs> or if you're deaf, you get better at seeing, right. Like there's uh I, yeah. So, you know, for me, it's like in my neurodiversity, uh, language has been really important um, and has given me a sense of it's helped me shape a sense of identity and belonging and affiliation and resonance. I mean, I think. Um, uh, so, I, it, it, you know, it's 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 it's, it's interesting. Um how these dynamics are connected to even our sense of self and how we show up in the world.
Um, yeah. So, Josh, where can people find you online? What are you up to? <laughs> uh, just like everybody else, I'm on, I'm on the LinkedIn's, uh, and that's about it for my social media presence. But uh, you can find my contact at longtailstudios.com, which is the company I nominally run. Um, and Longtail spelled L-O-N-G-T-A-L-E, because I'm clever with portmanteaus like that. <laughs> portmanteaus and that's toes with an x right uh, I, I don't know my french spelling is not that good these days yeah uh cool josh Vitilli, as always appreciate it man no worries joel